0: And tonight we are going to be continuing with that thought. Uh, I know it's been some weeks since we looked at that. Don't worry, I want to do a review, a recap here, and help us to be reminded of some truths in which we looked at as we began looking at this portion of Scripture. But tonight as we continue our journey through James chapter 3, it's incredible at how God puts together and relays to us the Context that is continual and it's through generation to generation. That there is a battle for our thinking, there is a battle for our mind. It is real and it is powerful. And if we are not careful, we can end up having a mindset that is not what God intended. And I pray that as we look at scripture tonight, that you would allow the Spirit of God to teach out your heart. I want Him to teach my heart tonight. As we look at these truths, and I pray that you'll be yielded and, listen, yielded and willing to listen to what the Word of God has for us. Let's begin in James chapter 3. Look at verse number 13 with me, if you would. The Bible says, Who is a wise man and endued with knowledge among you? Let him show out of a good conversation his works with meekness of wisdom. But if ye have bitter envying and strife in your hearts, glory not. And lie not against the truth. This wisdom descendeth not from above, but is earthly, sensual, devilish. For where envy and strife is, there is confusion in every evil work. But the wisdom that is from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, and easy to be entreated, full of mercy and good fruits, without partiality and without hypocrisy. And the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace of them that make peace. Father, once again, we ask for your wisdom. We ask for your mind. Teach us now, I pray, in Jesus' name. Amen. Wisdom, or the battle for the mind... Is a context in which James begins to teach and exhort our hearts. As we began last, the last time we looked at it, we talked about a test for the source of wisdom. And we began to diagnose and to see how we can know where our source of wisdom relies from. And as we thought about that, we thought about two things that really. Kind of tug or pull at one another. It's I used an illustration when we first began looking at this in October about pulling or tug or uh, a tug of war uh, with my football team as a young lad, and I remember that time. But it's very much like a tug of war. I remember uh, seeing over the years some trucks put apart going opposite directions with a powerful chain or a strong length of chain in between the two of those trucks trying they would pull and they would battle back and forth and really the most powerful truck may not win it might have the greatest or the most powerful motor it might have uh, a more powerful trans uh, gearbox it might have a stronger drive train However, if there's no traction or if it is not uh, able to bite into the ground, bite into the dirt, a less powerful truck with more traction may win. And oh, how the battle of our mind is given. You know, there is nothing that is incomparable to the power of godly wisdom. Godly wisdom is a powerful, powerful thing. It is truly stronger than the world's wisdom without even comparable in, uh, strength and in power. However, if we don't give any traction in our hearts and in our minds to godly wisdom, godly wisdom may not win the battle of our minds if we allow devilish wisdom as we saw last time have more traction in our hearts and our lives. God wants us to have godly wisdom. He wants us to have his mind. He wants us to have his understanding. He wants us to put understanding and knowledge together in a manner that truly leads to good outcomes. And as we think about that, I want us to remind ourselves of the context of James chapter 3. I want you to notice, secondly, that not only does it test, is there a test for the source of wisdom, but James here begins to give us the outcomes of wisdom, the results. What happens if I allow one, uh, one wisdom, whether it's godly wisdom or devilish wisdom, to take traction in my mind? What happens? What is the outcome tonight? Remind our, let's remind ourselves of the context of this verse. Who is James speaking to? Look at verse number 10 of James chapter 3, please. Notice the Bible says, Out of the same mouth proceedeth blessing and cursing. My brethren, these things ought not so to be. In verse number 12, it says, Can a fig tree my brethren? The Bible speaks about the brethren, about those who are in the family of God. It's brothers and sisters in Christ as this is being relayed. Remember that this is being relayed to brothers and sisters in Christ. It's speaking of a family atmosphere and dealing with our family and brethren that will, of course bleed over to those around us but the context here is speaking to the brethren speaking to those who are in a local assembly a local family of god who are working and serving laboring together with christ and as he is addressing us as a church us as a local family of believers and thank god that we have a local family of believers called the local New Testament church that we can gather. Let's never take it for granted. We truly have seen the value of it this year. Our hearts have been torn because we've not been able to assemble like our hearts desired. Thank God for the technology in which he has given us, but there is nothing that replaces the fellowship and the camaraderie and the unity that comes with a family that is together it is so vital and so important it cannot be understated how important it is not the local church meet together how vital that is the bible teaches us as he's speaking to the brethren he begins in our text by addressing godly wisdom look at it with me once more if you would please the bible says who is a wise man and endued with knowledge among you let him show out of a good conversation that word conversation there remember means a manner of life it's how one lives it's not speaking of just a conversation as far as vocabulary or verbiage, but it's speaking of our living, how we walk, how we handle ourselves, what we do, where we go, what we consume, what we uh, 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 what we stand for, and where we uh, uh, find our, or where we lead our lives as Christians. Speaking of more than just the vocabulary, it's speaking of our walk as Christians children of God. Notice, out of a good conversation, his works, and then notice this statement, with meekness of wisdom. That word meekness there means gentleness. It's speaking of acting in a manner that is mild and even-tempered. Remember, he is speaking to the local church. He's speaking to the family of God. And as a family of God, we ought to look for a kind, gentle, and peaceful resolution among the brethren. You say resolution, that means there's some conflicts. You're right, there are conflicts in a family. (laughs) Growing up as one of three sons, there were some conflicts that I had with my brothers. There were some times where I did things I should not, and there were many more times that they did things that they should not. Uh, But uh, I was the oldest. I was the one that paved the way. I was the experimented one uh, on. But there are conflicts that happen. There are many times of resolution. It's part of being a family, and it's part of knowing and wisely handling those situations as brethren and knowing how we can wisely, in a godly manner, handle the resolutions and handle uh, the moments in which one falls, or one struggles, or one maybe has a disagreement, or one has some odds and such, and it's not a uh, God's family is not to fall out. It's not to separate. Uh, God's family ought to grow and to grow stronger and to go forward, uh, laboring together for the cause of. So often as we think about this word meekness, our mind immediately begins to think of someone who is not willing to take a stand or not willing to uh, to help or to exhort in some way. But that's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches us that there was a man who was very meek. His name was Moses. In Numbers chapter 12, in verse number 3, we see this statement. Now the man Moses was very meek above all which were upon the face of the earth. The Bible teaches us that Moses was very meek. What does this mean? He led hundreds upon thousands, and I believe possibly even millions of people through a wilderness. You don't lead millions of people through the wilderness with a myriad of type of background it wasn't just jewish people there there were egyptians there there were other nationalities and other cultures represented that chose to become part of the children of israel that became that chose to become jewish that be chose to become a part of the family of god and leading those many people there was conflicts and oh we've read some of the conflicts we understand that there were conflicts, but you understand that when God is speaking of Moses was meek, that there are different approaches and different avenues for meekness. What does that mean when Moses was meek? I believe it speaks in, primarily in three parts. First of all, Moses was meek. He was gentle, he was understanding, he was kind as God spoke to him. In other words, when God spoke to him, his heart was gentle, his heart was open, his heart was receptive, it was mild as God taught him. He had a meek relationship with God. What God said, he understood. And when, and when he understood what God had said, he took it into place. He practiced it. He didn't just hear the word of God and dismiss it, but he applied it to his life. He practiced it. He, uh, he accepted or took on board what the word of God stated. The first area, I believe, in which Moses exhibited a meekness was with his relationship with God. He did not push against God, but rather he was meek and is receptive towards what God had said. Secondly, he was meek among his relationships among the children of Israel. In other words, he looked for an avenue that would resolute to peace doesn't mean that there would be maybe some pertinent hurt, hurt some wounds in the heart but he looked for a solution or a resolution that would bring to peace peace of what well peace between them between Moses and maybe Aaron Moses and Miriam his sister Moses and the those that he, he dealt with and served with and labored with but also thirdly, it couples into helping them to also have that same peace or that same meekness with God. And I believe this is what stood Moses apart from all others. And this is why I believe God says he was very meek because Moses knew how to bring peace to a situation, not because of his great demeanor, but because he understood a gentle and a kind and a peaceful resolute that would help not only him to have a good and, 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 and vibrant walk with the Lord, but it encouraged others to have that walk with the Lord. Now, there were some struggles. There were some times where Moses had to take a stand. There were times where he had to draw a line in the sand. and said, who is on the Lord's side? And he did so, why? To help the children of Israel to reestablish a peaceful relationship with God. A meek relationship with God he was willing to take a stand. Being meek does not mean someone does not take a stand for that which is right, but it means looking to take a stand and looking to do so with a peaceful heart and a wanting to come to a peaceful solution between those times. In other words, he was looking to uh, to uh, diminish any divisions between not only him and God, but between him and others and between others and God. He was one that was trying to become or or trying to help establish a peaceful situation where all would be able to understand and work together as a family. And this, when a church, a local church, strives for this and captures this thought, this is what, draws a great appeal among the world because the world is looking for this they want peace with god they want peace with one another they want peace with the world and uh, and, and and others that they interact with and when a church has, uh, f- uh, comes to this and, co- and, and understands this concept and begins to rally around it, it draws an appeal to the gospel like nothing else can because the, devil solu- the devil's solution does not bring peace. It brings division. It brings strife, as we'll see in just a few moments. It is something that brings a disjunction to homes. This is why the gospel is so, so important. Because you and I might have some disagreements even as a family of God. We might not see eye to eye on every situation. And by the way, we won't because you're different than me. You've had experiences that I haven't. I've had experiences that you haven't. We've walked on different roads, and yes, when we look at the gospel and we see, you know what, God can use our differences, God can use those moments in which we do not agree to sharpen one another, iron sharpeneth iron, and to help us to go forward with the gospel more effective. And as we labor together for the unity of the gospel, It does something that nothing else can. Oh, how much the world wants us to rally around so many different agendas and causes, but there is nothing that can rally one together like the gospel of Christ. Thank God for the uh, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And it is us laboring together to get the gospel out that brings unity like nothing else can. Godly wisdom looks for that gentle, mild, and even-tempered solution, unifying God's people for the common cause of preaching the good news of Jesus Christ. And if you remember, in October, we displayed a diamond, and this truly is a diamond. This is wisdom that the world looks at and says, that's beautiful. I want that. Godly wisdom is such that it draws and inspires and challenges. It's beautiful in every aspect, because it's of God. And James held up the diamond of the god, of godly wisdom, and then he holds up the backdrop. a dark backdrop. We've already stated it. James calls it devilish wisdom. Evil wisdom. It is wisdom that is corrupt, not of God. And he holds that diamond up in the backdrop... uh, 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 In front of the backdrop of that devilish wisdom, and just like you hold a diamond up in front of a dark background, the luster shines even more. Thus, God's godly wisdom shines even more powerfully against the backdrop of devilish wisdom. And such is the case. Look at verse number thirteen with or fourteen, excuse me, tonight, and let's remind ourselves this evening. Of the backdrop in which James illustrates once again. He says in verse number 14, But if ye have bitter envy and strive in your hearts, glory not and lie not against the truth. I'm going to very quickly walk through these words, remind ourselves, because it's very important for us to understand this, for us to continue on tonight. I'm going to walk through this for just a moment and give you an illustration here this evening. I believe it will help put things together tonight as we continue on. First of all, notice he says, but if you have bitter envying. That word bitter there is the Greek word pikros, which means hostility. It means proceeding from or exhibiting great hostility or animosity. But what kind of bitterness is it? It's bitter envying. That word envying there it speaks of a jealousy or a greedy or prideful longing for something that belongs to another, even something intangible such as a skill. Bitter envying can be rooted in something as simple as Pastor mentioned that person. Why did he mention me? That person seen some very open and productive results in his life and in his walk with God, why don't I have those same results? That family looks like they have everything together. Why isn't my family like that? It's that moment of bitter envying. It can be as simple as rooted in a simple thought like that. And that bitter envying can spur into what? Notice what the Bible says, and strife in your hearts. That word strife in your heart speaks of a selfish ambition. It's a strong drive for personal success without moral inhibitions. In other words, it is escalating that competition of that family has what I don't have. I want that, and I am willing to take some shortcuts i am willing to do some things that are not right to either a tear down that family and to make that family diminish in the eyes of others or lift myself up so i can be exalted above what i think that family is that person seems like he's getting more of attention from someone whom I respect spiritually. Maybe I need to tear that individual down a little bit or maybe I need to push them aside so I get that attention that I want and I think I deserve. It is beginning to develop strife It is beginning to plan and to scheme on how you can get yourself or become exalted above that individual or that ministry or that friend or that brother or sister in Christ that you look to and have some jealousy in your heart about where they are or what they are being used for in a certain aspect of ministry. Promoting in a rivalous way, oneself. Notice how it continues. James says, glory not. That word glory not speaks of boasting over. It's of exalting one's achievements over and against someone or something else. Someone has some exciting moments in their life and we find a way to negate their Moment of exciting growth. And we negate it because we push ourselves up and try to glory in our achievements and make their achievements look like they are for naught. Then notice what it says. And against the truth. Speaking of taking half-truths or even blatant lies to try to convince others that you are more excellent or you deserve more praise or more attention than someone else. For whatever the reason, it is continuing to exalt and edify one another. Or excuse me, one over another. I want to illustrate this tonight, I don't want to use two of my sons here to do that this evening. I want to ask uh, Jonathan and Nathan, if you would, to come up here tonight, and I would appreciate that, and wonderful. Thank you very much. Just stand side by side. Come over here, if you would. Yep, there you go. One step there, one step there. Good. Wonderful. Now, Jonathan, on Sunday, uh, played a piano duet with my wife. Uh, did a fantastic job did an incredible job and proud of his work that he's been doing he's been working hard on the piano Nathan has loved playing the guitar you like the guitar don't you bud he does he's been playing he's been working he's been practicing for two years three years now and uh, it's been he's been practicing for uh, uh, at least a couple of years and he is really learning he is growing as well now Godly wisdom does this. Jonathan had a great day on Sunday. He played a piano duet in church. Did a fantastic job. Godly wisdom from Nathan would look to his brother, would look to his brother, there he goes, would look to his brother and he would say, Jonathan, you did a great job. That was well done. I am so excited for what you were able to do today. You did fantastic you hit every note. Everything seemed just right. Everything was just perfect. You are the next Beethoven, or or, 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 or next Bach, or the next uh, Ron Hamilton, or uh, on and on we can go. I guess we could say, you know, it is complimenting, encouraging, and promoting one as a team. In other words, Jonathan's victories do not negate Nathan's victories. But Jonathan's victories as part of the family of God means a victory of us, a victory of the family of God. It is a victory of someone who is growing in talent and growing in the Lord. Isn't that a wonderful thing? That is a victory for Christ. And we're all on the same team. That is godly wisdom. It is understanding the success and the moment of growth and glorying in christ through that moment of growth as a family of god that's godly wisdom but the bible contrasts godly wisdom with devilish wisdom what is devilish wisdom now i'm going to state this because i don't want to give nathan any ideas uh, but uh, nathan it would be nathan looking at his brother and saying you know That was okay. I noticed there was a couple notes there. I could have probably done a little better on the guitar. In fact, if I got to play that same song on the guitar, I don't think I would have missed those same notes. I've been practicing longer on the guitar than you have on the piano. I know more about playing the guitar I know the note, the chords and the notes better. I think I could have done a better job. In fact, I should have a job. I should have an opportunity to do so. I should have an opportunity to play and to see how much better my guitar playing is than your piano playing. That is devilish wisdom. Why? Because all he is wanting to do is wanting to elevate himself instead of glorying in christ see the difference there there's a self-promotion a self-exaltation in devilish wisdom and when those type of statements are said those would be hurtful statements wouldn't they jonathan now nathan by the way i'm just going on record did not say those things He was happy for his brother, and thank God for that. But it hurts when things like that are stated. Even, even at just a sly comment or just a simple thought. What we think is a simple thought, but it's a hurtful statement. And that causes strife. And what does strife do? It brings division. Now when Nathan and Jonathan come together, there's something between them. There's something there. There's a division there. Why? Because words have been stated. Their hearts have been spread. God says we need to get his mind, his heart. We need godly wisdom. For godly wisdom does not separate Godly wisdom finds a way to create a peaceful resolution, to exalt Christ, to further the labors of God. So vital we understand the difference between devilish wisdom and godly wisdom. The devil separates. God brings a wonderful peace that passeth understanding. It puts our minds at rest thank you boys i'm maybe seated i appreciate your help there thank you for letting me use you as an illustration and you guys deserve some reward for letting me use you as as an illustration maybe ice cream tomorrow or something like that they're looking and saying yes but we have christmas goodies Uh, everyone needs a little ice cream in the midst of christmas season (laughs) What spirit is better received by those who watch a family? Is it a spirit of peace that's better received or a spirit of division that is better received? All of us can look and say it's a spirit of peace. That's what we want. One of the common statements at this time on earth, on on this time of year is peace on earth and goodwill to men what the angels sang around the birth of christ it's what this world wants it wants peace on earth but peace on earth does not come from devilish wisdom it comes from godly wisdom this type of thinking is done on purpose you have a choice i have a choice We have choices tonight to choose how we are going to think and allow wisdom to guide our thoughts. We have a choice to let the traction of godly wisdom take root in our minds or devilish wisdom to take traction in the root of our minds. We have a choice tonight. Devilish wisdom does not need to win. Godly wisdom is much more powerful. Its resolution is much more permanent. It is truly something that leads and guides and will be shaped in our hearts and minds for eternity. It is something of great power. We have a choice tonight. We have a choice this evening. We must recognize truly when devilish wisdom is beginning to lift up its dark veil, We need to resist that temptation, yield our minds to Jesus Christ, submit our spirit to the Holy Spirit, and trust God and his word to help us to think right things, to think right wisdom, to act on right values, biblical values. Tonight I want us to see, as James puts out before us in verse number 15, the product of human wisdom. Notice what he says in verse 15 those, this wisdom, speaking of that wisdom that brings strife and envy. Notice this wisdom descendeth not from above. This is not heavenly wisdom. Wisdom that separates, wisdom that causes strife, wisdom that brings and exalts oneself over another is not from above, it's not of heaven, it's not of God, but is earthly, sensual, devilish. That word sensual there is the Greek word psyche. That word psyche they're the best English word, to translate over into that is a, is the soul. It speaks of human nature, what we like and what we feel, hence the word sensual we see. It speaks of that which we know and are familiar with, that in which we are used to feeling and handle. That word sensual there speaks of that in which is our nature, our human nature that fallen nature that nature that one day will be removed from us completely the bible teaches us that that wisdom is devilish this is a type of thinking that seeks to exalt oneself and this thinking is devilish But why devilish? Why is it that self-exalting of oneself, devilish thinking? Well, let's look at what the Bible says. Turn, if you will, to a book called Isaiah. It's in the Old Testament. Powerful prophet used by God. The Bible teaches us in chapter 14, verse number 12. How art thou fallen from heaven? O Lucifer, son of the morning, how art thou cut down to the ground which didst weaken the nations? For thou hast said in, notice these words, thine heart. What did Lucifer state? This is speaking of when he was a part of the choir of heaven. The Bible speaks of him being a Lucifer as one that had great musical talents. I believe he very well could have been the the choir uh, choir orchestrator, uh, the choir conductor or director of heaven, as it were. And in this moment of great talent and of great ability and of great power, he began to have some musings in his heart Why are we praising God? Look at what I can do. And look what he began to state. I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will sit also upon the mount of the congregation in the sides of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds, I will be like the Most High. Why is James pointing this out as devilish wisdom? Because he says this type of self-exalting, of division, of bringing strife, is something that not, is not of God. It is something that spurred from the heart of Lucifer, and Lucifer was cast down. The Bible continues and speaks of how he being cast down and he being defeated. Yes, he tried to battle, but he was woefully ignorant of the power of God. He thought he could be like the Most High, but he could not. The truth is there is no one greater than God. Lucifer, Satan, the devil, has no power compared to the power of God. And yet, his heart began to exalt itself. And that self-exaltation began to bring bitter envy, strife, glory of oneself, and even lying against the truth. He said, I will be like the Most High. That was a lie. Only one God. There is none else. And this wisdom, is devilish wisdom, is a human nature, is what this world is rallying around. This wisdom is truly a phony wisdom it has th- that, uh, that has been denounced. It descendeth not from above, but truly it is earthly. It is the wisdom of this world. It expresses itself in various ways. All human philosophy, psychology, science, relig- and religion betray their secular origins. By the time of Christ, the great philosophers of Greece and Rome had come and gone. They had been unable to produce any real answers to life's most profound problems. And modern psychology does no better. The world's religion, except for Islam, which borrowed extensively from Judaism, Christianity, and the Bible... Had all, uh, had all had their day and had been given ample time to demonstrate their essential idolatry and bankruptcy by the time Christ came. Freud, who hated Christianity and called himself a, go- a completely godless Jew and a hopeless pagan, invented modern psychology. He endorsed irresponsible behavior and made it respectable. He gave irresponsible people welcome excuses with which to justify their behavior. Science has furthered this by achieving wonders, but has created as many problems as it has solved. It has given us nuclear weapons, intercontinental missiles, and revolutionary ways to disseminate information and process data. But what horrors! through playing God with genetic engineering and cloning and the like, truly remains to be seen yet. Much of modern science is secular and humanistic. The accepted basic philosophy of most scientists is evolution, a God-dishonoring, soul-destroying, man-debasing religion that gives people a working hypothesis for atheism. And this type of thinking can be given and rooted deeply into what Lucifer began in the Garden of Eden. Was it not he in Genesis chapter 3, verse number 6, that when she saw that the tree was good for food and that it was pleasant to the eyes and a tree to be desired to make one wise? What did Satan do? Satan in the Garden of Eden with someone who had a complete, perfect nature at that moment, beguiled her by beginning to think that God had cheated her out of something, that God had given, uh, had not allowed her to have something that was even better than what God had given all that all of all that was in the Garden of Eden. Oh, how much God had given the uh, Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. Think about this for just a moment, of all the fruit that was given, all that was available to them in that garden, all the trees in which they could enjoy from, and yet there was one tree that God said, do not eat of, one tree, one simple instruction, and Satan began to deceive Eve by stating, God is holding something back from you. Know be- you can know better than God. You can be like him. You can exalt yourself and gain wisdom. And with that very basis of self ex- self-exaltation, Eve partook of that fruit. These tools truly have continually, through their cunning, keep people in soul-destroying bondage as he lures people by thoughts of I'm really not that bad. I've never done you fill in the blank. I've heard so many things over the years. Well, I've not hurt anybody. I've lived a pretty good life. I'm not really that bad. And God uses that or excuse me, Satan uses that self-exaltation to give people a reason to not put their faith and trust in trusting. He lures people by thoughts of self-exaltation by stating, why would a loving God send me to hell? If he loves me, why would he send me to hell? I don't need Jesus, I'm good, I'm okay. God, or excuse me, Satan exalts and tries to deceive us through this moment of of self-exaltation. The Bible tells us in James chapter 3, verse number 16, notice what it says For where envying and strife is, there is confusion and every evil work. Where that self exaltation becomes a part of our minds, and it begins to gain traction in us, notice what it causes. It causes envying, jealousy, and strife, self-ambition. What does this do? What does this do to us? It puts our minds at a unrestful place. When we begin scheming about how we can exalt ourselves and how we are so much better than a brother or sister in Christ, or how our our life is somehow diminished by the exaltation of someone's victory in Christ. Or how we've been slighted in some way. Someone hasn't uh, been as nice to us as we thought they should, or they haven't greeted us like we thought they should have. There must be something wrong, and those moments of bitter envies and strife begin to cultivate. It begins putting our minds at turmoil. And I believe this is one of the great reasons why so many people today, even Christians, are struggling mentally because their minds are never at rest. They're always vying and thinking, how can I get better or how can I get promoted above so-and-so? How can I be uh, admonished above individual why wasn't my name mentioned why wasn't this being stated why is it my family like that why is it my home like that why don't i have those things why hasn't god blessed me in those things and it begins a cycle of bitter envies and jealousy that begins to exalt ourselves to the point of where our minds are completely at turmoil and god never meant, god never meant that to be God never designed that. The Bible tells us that that strife and envying continues into ungodliness. Look at what the Bible says. There is confusion and every evil work. That word confusion and every evil work speaks of a disorder and a tumult of a commotion and ungodliness. Something to consider right there. Evil work—a confuse, uh, confusing, and a commotion—something that brings disorder to our lives. The Bible teaches us in Luke chapter twenty-one, and verse number nine, Jesus warned at the end days when ye shall hear of wars and commotions. There's that same word as we see of every evil work that confusion that's going to come and going to be. and Oh, how much we live in a confusing time, a disorderly time. And it truly, Christ continues, Be not terrified, for these things first must come to pass, but the end is not by and by. Do you see what Jesus did there? He said there's going to be confusion, there's going to be commotions, there's going to be disorder. He says, but just understand everything's okay. All these things are planned, all these things will be for a time but remember i've got everything in control jesus highlights the disorder and the commotion and then brings to value his godly wisdom the world truly will wax worse and worse and as the world wax worse and worse in disorder and confusion god says your mind doesn't have to be in a disorder Your mind doesn't have to be unrestful. It can find rest with God. Paul warned the church in Corinth about this very thing. He stated in 1 Corinthians 14.33, For God is not the author of confusion, but of peace. And notice what it says. As in... All churches of the saints. Paul's addressing a church just like James is addressing the family of God. God doesn't want and God did not design it for an unrestful time or a commotion or disorder or uh, confusion to come into play. God meant everything to be of peace and of a a unification, laboring for the gospel's sake. The Bible teaches us that there is confusion and every evil work. That word evil there speaks of a worthlessness. It speaks of a worthlessness that is something that is blown about by the wind. You remember the parable that Jesus stated where the foolish man built his house upon the sand, something that is not going to stand, that's going to erode away. And that's the type of evil thinking in which uh, James is highlighting and speaking of here. Something that thinks one can exalt himself over, but the Bible teaches us that it will be blown away, it will be for naught, it will be gone. What you thought was of value will become for naught. Solomon is the great example of this very thing you see of you say of evil or devilish wisdom yes sadly yes you see when solomon began his kingship god granted him with godly wisdom god granted him with wisdom like man has never seen we see his wise thoughts penned powerfully in the book of Proverbs. And oh, how powerful and how amazing and how thoughtful the wisdom of God was poured through this man. God preserved that for us. Powerful wisdom. His wisdom became so infamous that even the queen of Sheba came to see and to sample. The wisdom that's coming from Jerusalem. Powerful, godly wisdom. But then, Solomon began a journey. A journey that Jesus himself warns us about in Matthew 6. In Matthew 6.23, the Bible says, But if thine eye be evil, the whole body shall be full of darkness. If therefore the light that is in thee be darkness, how great is that darkness. Jesus warns us that the light of of godly wisdom, the light that he so wonderfully gives, Can be veiled with darkness. It can be not extinguished as a child of God. We can never lose our salvation. But godly wisdom can be diminished by the darkness that we allow that light to be enveloped in. Solomon did that very thing, he began hiding his light under a bushel we sing that song in sunday school let your light shine hide it under a bushel no i'm going to let my light shine god warns us of putting our light under a bushel under the bushel of devilish wisdom how did solomon a man that had great godly wisdom do this very thing he began a journey by marrying a pagan queen this pagan queen began to cause some rationalizing in his heart and his mind to affirm and to establish other relationships with other countries, pagan countries around him, neighboring Israel. And as he wanted to bring some greater uh, strength to the relationships it was common in that day to marry of the of the king's family to establish and to firm that relationship as they saw however that was not what god intended that's what not god uh, that's that uh, that was not what god wanted and so solomon began marrying these families and these are excuse me marrying into these families marrying these pagan daughters and. As he began to do so, they began to slowly change his heart. His heart began to distance himself from uh, from the God that he stated that he would love and serve as he was inaugurated as king. As he was anointed king of Israel, he vowed to serve and to love the Lord. And God warned him to do so all the days of his life. He chose, though, to take that light and to put it under a bushel. At the end of his life, Solomon was a foolish man. At the end of his life, Solomon bowed down to pagan gods and worshipped those idols. And upon the end of his life, we see a book. book called ecclesiastes where he laments and he says i look back on my life and all those things that i thought were important they were all vanity empty worthless they did not bring how sad of a story that is because Solomon's journey from godly wisdom to devilish wisdom caused such great damage to the very country and to the very people in which he served and led that it brought such devastation to Israel that they never fully recovered from it until after the captivity Uh, until the end of the captivity of the Babylonians. They never recovered. Oh, they had moments where they began to go towards God, but they never were where God intended. How sad it is when we take our wisdom that God gives us choose to hide it under a bushel. And as the song goes, hide it under a bushel? No, I'm going to let it shine. May I encourage you tonight to not take that beauty of the diamond of godly wisdom this evening and and veil it under devilish wisdom. God has a better way. We looked at the darkness tonight. As James warns us and shows us how dark it is, how destructive it is. But God has a better way. And we'll take that better way and we'll look full more, more fully at that diamond next week. But I encourage you to finish James chapter 3. Read it, meditate upon it this week. And as we come and as we look at it once again on a Wednesday evening, I pray that our hearts will once again be captivated with the beauty of the diamond of godly wisdom. Don't let Satan bring strife and division and a self-exaltation to your heart as a child of God. We're on the same team. If you trust in Christ as your Savior and you believe in the gospel, I'm for you. I'm not, combat, I'm not competing with you. I'm not trying to get a bigger pedestal than you. I'm not trying to knock you off of your pedestal. I want us together to grow in Christ. I want us to go forward. I want the gospel to go forward here. May we, as a church, remember this. As a family of God, be in reminder uh, 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 being reminded of this. That we don't ever come to a point in which we allow Satan to begin to self-exalt us to where we find that those thoughts lead to worthlessness, emptiness, vanity. God has a better way. Let's look at the priceless beauty of God's wisdom.